Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello everyone, I'm your host James Rogers and this is the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm excited to say we have the brilliant Professor Simon Elliott from the School of Advanced Study at the University of London. He's here on the podcast. When I was in the archives a few weeks ago, I was rooting around and looking for reports of the bombing of the UK by the Luftwaffe during the Second World War for a new book that I'm writing and I came across files that showed how many of these public reports on Luftwaffe bombing had been censored. And then I stumbled across the Ministry of Information, and I needed to know more. Simon is an expert on the MOI, the Ministry of Information, which was established by the British government at the outbreak of the Second World War. It was responsible for issuing national propaganda at home and abroad, as well as censoring information deemed to be of military value. Now, as Simon explains, they used all available forms of communication. They issued pamphlets and posters to local authorities. They issued guidance to the press on what they should and shouldn't publish. They published their own books and illustrated magazines on key aspects of the Second World War. And they ran thousands of public meetings, curated exhibitions, produced films, organised radio broadcasts, and they even placed snoopers in pubs and at bus stops to listen to rumours. This was government communication on an unprecedented scale. So here is Simon Elliott on the Ministry of Information. Hi Simon, welcome to the History Hit Warfare podcast. How are you doing today? I'm fine, thank you very much for having me. No, not a problem at all. Thank you for joining us. It's getting later in the evening where you are. You're in London, is that right? I'm in Bath, actually. In Bath, beautiful Bath. Bath. Where I live. Hmm. Lucky man. It's a delightful city. I feel like I'm in a bath right now because it is torrential rain. I mean, it is monsooning outside. So anyone listening at home, if you hear the pitter-patter of raindrops, then you'll know what, what that is. My deepest apologies. Now... I am really thankful for you taking the time to join us, Simon, because I'm really keen to hear about your amazing research project on the Ministry of Information between 1939 and 1946. So let's start with the basics. What was the role of the Ministry of Information and why did it begin? 
Well, at the end of the First World War, the government had created in the last year or so a Ministry of Information. It took a long time to realise you actually needed to inform and encourage the population. So by the time it got underway, the war was over and it was dissolved. But it was quite clear to governments from the mid-1930s that war was approaching and that something similar needed to be there from the very beginning. So indeed, the MOI came into existence within a week of the war being declared. Its job was multifarious, but I think it could be summarised by the need to sustain the morale of the British people. It was appreciated that uh, this sort of war would be fought as much on the home front as on the battlefront. And therefore, the sustaining of the UK population's confidence and belief in their commitment and the seriousness and the ultimate success of the war effort was absolutely crucial. So immediately that created a problem because you could devise various programs and various publications that might succeed in raising or sustaining morale. But how would you know? So one of the other important functions of the MI was to run a system of essentially, uh, it followed on from mass observations, a, a public observation, public opinion surveys, which it could use to judge success or failure of its efforts. And in that sense, I suppose the MOI was a very open organization. It needed feedback. It needed to take that feedback seriously. And particularly when it was critical or negative, it needed to respond very quickly. Of course, the recruitment policy reflected the needs of the ministry. So although there were some senior civil servants, the majority of those, particularly by the time MOI was firmly established by 41, 42, were not civil servants at all. They were recruited from publishing, from advertising, from journalism, and that gave them a very open, outward-looking approach. And of course, they brought in a host of skills and approaches to the problem that no civil servant would have conceived of or been able to deliver. So the MI was curious in that respect too. It wasn't like any other ministry. And the most striking thing of all is that by the end of the war, the MOI had the most positive public opinion rating of all ministries and of all fighting services during the war. And that's something of a success, given the natural cynicism of most people, feel that they were subjected or might be subjected to propaganda or brainwashing of some sort. You know, early on, there was a lot of scepticism and a lot of cynicism. But it's quite clear the MOI succeeded in convincing a significant proportion of the British population that it was doing a good job and necessary. In fact, one of the most interesting things of all, you mentioned 1939 to 46, some were quite keen to carry the Ministry of Information into peacetime. But many of those who were actually working were determined that shouldn't occur. It was almost too good a job. It was potentially very 
powerful and a peacetime open society really shouldn't have that sort of agency functioning within it. I love the idea that we measure its success by its public opinion, but it was also kind of in charge of <laughs> manipulating that public opinion in a certain way. So it was really, really good at its job, Simon. Well, it, it, it was, partly because it was conscious of its failures. Well, it had a lot of early controversy, didn't it? it and conscious of its limitations too. So tell us a little bit about this early controversy. Well, there are a number of difficulties. Partly the way in which the ministry was devised and set up was full of contradictions. Various papers were written that provided the ministry with a tremendous amount of power. Another paper would suggest much more limited capacity. There was some uncertainty as to whether information was to be sent directly to the MOI or information saved with themselves, deliver it to the public. So a real problem there. There's also an enormous difficulty early on with what one might call tone. Okay. The first major attempt to convey information encouragement to the, the public occurred in the autumn of 39, when a series of posters, and posters are very important for the MOI, were launched. And they had the tone almost of a, of a scoutmaster. Your courage, your confidence will see us through. And that sounded right. It sounded buoyant and encouraging. But the reaction to these posters was very striking. In Parliament, they were objected to. The newspapers, almost without exception, rounded on them because they were vacuous. They didn't encourage people to do anything. They were just a piece of rhetoric. But worst of all was that other scout-masterly tone. does sound a bit paternalistic and a bit patronising, doesn't Not it? Not a bit. It was more <laughs> patronising, or at least that's what the newspapers felt. And they thought that one effective way of demoralising the morale of the British people would be to treat them as though they were children or Boy Scouts to be instructed in the proper moral and political views uh, that the government wanted them to hold. So that was catastrophically bad. Uh, the useful thing is even early on, the MOI is getting lots of information from mass observation. So it too was learning not just from opinion in Parliament or opinion in the columns of the papers, but from public reaction. I'm interested by this, Simon, because you've used the term mass observation and it sent a shiver down my spine. What do we mean by mass observation? Mass observation was set up in the mid-30s. The first real attempt to survey the British population in a statistic, well, no, that, that puts too strong quantitative view, but in a broad way and not a way of simply approaching articulate middle-class people. But also, for instance, listening in on conversations at a bus stop or in the pub. These weren't quantitative, they were qualitative. But they had a sort of range of influences simply because they were trying something new and they were using new sources of information and they were getting through to, as it were, in quotes, ordinary people in a way that hadn't been effectively achieved before. And early on, the techniques, indeed some of the staff of mass observation, were used by EMOI. And in the very early months, uh, the mass observation was commissioned to 
undertake various surveys for the MOI. It was only in early 1940 that MOI finally set up its own home intelligence service, which essentially replicated and advanced and developed the techniques of mass observation. So there were people standing in pubs, having a pint. There were people standing next to you at a bus stop. And they were literally listening to what your opinion was on how the government are doing things, how the British Expeditionary Force are doing in the fight, and they're reporting all of this back. They are. And that raised the hackles of many. One of the ministers, uh, early ministers of information, who was responsible for the MOI, and they got through quite a few ministers' information until they settled down, was called Cooper. And inevitably, uh, when the public learned that this was going on, when the newspapers learned this was going on, uh, these people who were listening in were called Cooper's Snoopers. Cooper's Snoopers. Okay, that makes sense. There was quite a lot of humour created around this and, and many entertaining jokes. The interesting thing was, in the long term, it didn't affect people. It didn't affect them negatively. They at least liked the idea that their opinions were being conveyed. Uh, so although there's an initial row, things settled down, people were aware of what was going on, but it was still thought useful, even to those who were not being spied upon, but listened to. And it wasn't just that. They recruited a lot of teachers, of doctors who would be able to express fears and people suffering as doubts or rumours of one sort of world. And rumours were, of course, a very important feature of understanding what was going on, because uh, rumours could poison very rapidly the public mood. So the MI needed to be able to detect, identify these rumours quite early on, so they could issue various announcements, various publicity campaigns that would settle that rumour. If it was clearly false, that was relatively easy to just contradict it. If it had a grain of truth, you had to spin it in a different way. But quite a few of the early reports from the Home Intelligence Unit had a whole section on rumour. And this features again right at the end of the war in 1944 and 45 uh, during the V1 and V2 campaigns. Well, tell us a little bit more about that. How did this impact the perception of the V1 and V2 campaigns? Because it must have felt, as this continued on into 1945, that the war was never going to end and potentially that some of the reports that were being told about victory was... Um, well, perhaps not as true as the Ministry of Information made out. I think one's got to be careful of, of thinking the Ministry of Information was always pumping people up and always encouraging them to think things were going to be better. Their approach to D-Day was quite interesting. Of course, no one announced it till it happened, but people were anticipating a second front from 42 onwards. And the Public opinion was getting really frustrated by the end of 43 that nothing had happened. I think the anticipation of many, certainly that comes through in home intelligence reports, was that any invasion of Europe would be very bloody indeed, that the mortality rates and the injury rates would be much higher. And that wasn't contradicted by the MLA. They didn't say, oh, fine, it'll be all okay, it'll be a breeze. So when reports of casualties came through from D-Day, people were quite relieved 
because they weren't as substantial as they had feared. In fact, they were buoyed up by that to an extent, but sensed that the Germans would not take this line down, and they anticipated some sort of retaliation. Some speculated that it might be uh, parachutists dropping into London or something like that, or though they didn't understand it wasn't possible, uh, an increase in U-boat campaign or something like that. So when the V1 first were recognized, I think a lot of people were not surprised. That was the retaliation they had expected. What was frustrating is that the government didn't issue any significant information about this. It was quite clear because one got weekly home intelligence reports that people knew all about this. They reported them, many eyewitness accounts. So there's a tremendous amount of information circulating informally, but the government remained extraordinarily quiet. And the MOI, by this time, well aware that the best way of sustaining morale was to give as much information as possible, reliable information, was extraordinarily frustrated. Inevitably, they were dependent on the government. And if the government weren't going to issue any information, all they could report was the frustration and the irritation and the worry. And what was patently obvious, quite apart from the accounts of actual events, was the exaggeration of the casualties, particularly V1s. People reported 25,000, 30,000 people, various deaths, various parts of the country. And again, the MI couldn't do anything effectively until the government sent up, not allowed it, but actually provided the information that they could then use effectively to dampen down the fears and rumors and so on. And this was even more so of the V2. Again, reports came through through the home intelligence reports. People who've observed them, people have even actually commented on the fact that when you looked at, at the hole created by a V2, you could actually see frost, which puzzled them enormously, thinking this is a high explosive, why is there frost? And of course, that was the liquid oxygen that was, was still around. So quite accurate accounts. But again, the government, possibly because they really had no answer to it. They had no solutions to it, no effective way of dealing with it. You know, V1s to an extent sometimes could be handled by anti-aircraft guns or Spitfires or early meteor jet fighters, but you could do nothing about a V2. So perhaps it was that sense of desperation that kept the government silent. And again, the NOI couldn't do very much about it. It was only actually when the German high command issued a comment about V2s in, I think, around mid-November, that the Times picked that up and reproduced it and discussed it, and because it became public knowledge, forced Churchill to make a statement in the House. And that's actually one of the very important things about the MOI. It didn't function in a vacuum. There were various institutions and various media organisations which MOI couldn't, wouldn't want to control. It had wanted to control the BBC early on, but the BBC fought a very effective rearguard action. So it remained essentially independent. And of course, all the newspapers were essentially independent. The MI finally resolved essentially that the censorship job it had to do on British newspapers 
was confined to information that would be useful to the enemy. That should not be published. But opinion uh, wasn't to be censored. So editorials of all sorts crowded the public domain and produced a dynamic which the MOI couldn't and perhaps didn't want to control. So it, it, in an open society, it was a very powerful and a very effective organization, but it was never the sole organization. It always had to negotiate with other organizations and other institutions, which meant whether it wanted to or not, it had to be open, flexible and engaged in a dialogue. So there was the heart of the British free press was maintained to a certain extent. But when you mention the censoring of information that could be useful to the enemy, could you give us some examples of what you mean here? Do you, for example, maybe a question here. Were bombing reports across the UK censored? Because I suppose that if you reported on how successful a bombing raid had been in, in somewhere outside of London, like a, a Plymouth or a, a Hull or a Swansea, then you, that could be relayed back to the Luftwaffe to show just how successful their strategy of bombing had been and could have led to more bombing. Is that something that was censored across the country? There was an awareness that reports could actually either encourage the enemy or just provide them with more precise bombing and targeting information. So there was a certain reluctance to do that. But there was also the consciousness, most of this was known by the enemy. You know, it, it may not be that the exact consequences were known, but they knew they'd plastered Coventry, for instance. So it tended to be that sometimes there was a delay in giving out information, but once it was recognised that this was common knowledge, that would come through. There were various constraints, for instance. It's actually marvellous collection of newspaper photographs, particularly if you're talking about the Blitz. Yes. Now in the uh, Imperial War Museum. And each photograph has a sort of editorial comment at the back where the censor is going to allow it to be used or not to be used. And the showing of dead bodies, or particularly bits of bodies, for instance, is a common experience uh, during the Blitz, was not allowed. But you could show damaged buildings and flattened buildings, but you often give it a pitch, but business carries on. You know, that famous shot of the milkman struggling through the uh, the bombed ruins. Uh, that was, in fact, not a milkman at all, but the photographer's assistant set up for it. So, but it had a powerful... <laughs> oh, wow, that is incredible. So anything that was too dark and down in the dumps and showed perhaps that Britain wasn't doing well was pushed to one side anything too grotesque but anything that showed yes the damage but almost a message of survival and fortitude and that that blitz spirit was carefully crafted to continue I think you have to say that avoidance of the body parts was in one sense understandable because that is horrifying and I'm, I'm certainly not encouraged morale. The fact that the huge quantity of damage suffered between east eastern part of London was pretty broadly revealed and demonstrated. And indeed, when the MI comes to start producing books 
uh, war books, they were called, a series of paperback accounts of various features of the war. The first was on the Battle of Britain, an early one was on the home front. This showed an extraordinary number of photographs of parts of London completely desolate, or in the midst of ferocious, almost firestorm with a pathetically inadequate fire hoses playing on it. So it was, they were prepared to do this. But certainly the extreme grotesque horrors of bomb damage were not shown. And certainly the idea of the blitz spirit and life carrying on and people struggling to work was featured. If you love ancient history, then don't worry, we've got you covered. I'm Tristan Hughes, host of the Ancients podcast, the podcast for all things ancient history. Subscribe to The Ancients on History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. As I was going through the archives, looking into things like the, the Coventry bombings, there's reports of, of Churchill saying that it, it won't do anyone any harm to, to see the extent of which Britain is coming under massive bombardment, especially internationally. And that also goes with, with the Blitz as well, perhaps showing the Americans that although Britain has a certain amount of fortitude and is surviving, it does also need international help as well, aka get involved in the war as soon as you can. We're holding firm and holding strong after victory in the Battle of Britain, but help needs to come soon. Is Was any of this, do we know, I don't know if you found it through your studies, was any of this directly dictated by Churchill? Was this down from the Prime Minister's policy? Relatively, relatively little, like particularly later on, when you've got Brendan Bracken as Minister of Information. Bracken had easy access to Churchill. He was able to manage Churchill quite well, so could not neutralise him, but at least ease him away. Uh, there were various attempts at various times of the cabinet to affect policy. 
and some of it was more successful than others. More frequently early in the war, less commonly later. You're mentioning the US. A whole division and the MOI were divided into divisions, something like 2025 by the end of the war. One was devoted to the US. Oh, I didn't know that. I need to get into these files and archives, Simon. I'm going to come and visit you. It's well worth going to the National Archives because it's quite an extraordinary array of materials. Until the US, and indeed even when the US had entered the war, the American authorities were acutely sensitive to anything that smacked of propaganda, even the mildest sort. So the division devoted to the US had to tread extraordinarily carefully in order not to be denounced, not to be shown, to be put in pressure or presenting the British case too strongly. And some of their earlier efforts and publications, they avoided that, but they were extraordinarily dull and earnest and worthy. And of course, that didn't go down well at all with the American populace, given that it was used to racy papers and magazines and radio. And it's only when the MOI starts to take more guidance, as it were, from the sorts of journalists and the sorts of photographers who are working on picture post, for instance, did they get a, a format that worked well. But even when that format worked well and it was popular, they had to be extraordinarily cautious. There was a, an entire British Library of Information set up in Washington. But again, that was confined and constrained by the needs not to be too pushy, not to be shout too much. Uh, and in fact, you might say that was an extreme case of something the MOI was always, once it overcame the absurdities of that first campaign, horribly aware that shouting through a megaphone, exhorting, offering a sermon was the l last thing you need to do when you're trying to encourage people to support your view. And I've got one final question for you, Simon, because this fascinates me. As a, uh, as, as a, as a guy who graduated as a student from the University of Hull, I've always been amazed by the coastal towns around the UK and the, the northern cities around the UK and how they're left out of the narrative of bombing during the Second World War. And as I've been going through archival reports, I mean, if you go to Hull today, you'll still see ominous gaps between the buildings and little piles of rubble, I, I kid you not. And some of the buildings that haven't been um, or only are only just being repaired and turned into museums now, actually, that were bombed out back then. There are a couple of buildings that still have marks of shrapnel in them. That's right. The Bedeker raids. Ah, uh, and bars. Yes. Ah. And they've been preserved as a, as a memorial. Oh, wow. I need to come and visit those as well. But my question to you is, when you look at the media reports on these bombings, it does say a northeast coast town or perhaps a Midlands town or, or a, a northwest town had been bombed. It never really states a specific area. Was this also part of the Ministry of Information's censorship? Was this the papers censoring themselves? And could this be potentially a reason why we continue to focus on, on the Blitz spirit and we continue to focus on Coventry, but we still kind of miss the broader bombing that happened in 42, 43, 44 in favour of a very different narrative? I think a lot of the censorship was self-censorship. By, by the press? By the press, by yeah. the editors, 
ideas by the writers because they were felt as involved as everyone else in in the war campaign. And therefore, the number of occasions where you actually had to censor something formally were relatively limited. And the exception to that is the Daily Worker which was a real problem, particularly uh, while Russia was an ally of Nazi Germany, where, of course, particularly in Scotland, where there's a very strong communist party, that created all sorts of problems. And finally, its publication was suspended for quite a time. Not that those in the MOI wanted that, actually. They felt that it was just too crass. So there was a sort of hesitancy and a, and a tendency to be rather vague. One thing I would say, however, it may not be public, but I come back to the, the home intelligence reports because they're not just about London. But remember, the MOI divided the country up into about 12, 13 regions, and each region had its own MOI office and its own information officer and, of course, people who were working for the home intelligence service reporting back. So almost every weekly report had reports from different regions. And you know their response to the bombing raids were covered then. It may not have leaked out as widely into publicly available material, but the government and the MOI were very conscious of this. There are curious things, though. Clearly, during the Blitz, at least the early part of the Blitz, London was the great centre. And marvellous studies, by the way, if you have time, to take a look at the attitude towards bomb shelters and how people conducted themselves in bomb shelters, all sorts of complaints about people arriving early uh, <laughs> with beds and so on. Oh, reserving your spot in the bomb shelter. And one has to say, though not frequent, there are reports of anti-Semitism. For instance, certain people resenting said, the Jews because they got uh, early or the best places or something like that. Oh. So don't imagine that yeah, because the final solution was taking place elsewhere, that the British were innocent of these things. Uh, certain sections of society were far from that. And I think Londoners, some of them anyway, quite liked the idea of everyone attending to what was happening to them, their sufferings. So when you get these bombing raids extending to other parts, there's an expression of slight disappointment that the more attention is being paid to other parts of the country rather than to London. Oh, and one other marvellous thing in Coventry, there was... A car of, I think, the local information officer, or if it wasn't local information officer, certainly someone associated with the MOI, had been parked in Coventry. And in the two or three days after the major raid, newspapers had been saying how marvellous Coventry was. Coventry can take it. And life goes on and production goes on. And scribbled uh, on a piece of notepaper and tucked under a windscreen wiper of this car was a note to the effect, please do not get the newspapers to say, we can take it, we carry on, because I've just invited another bombing raid. I mean, I wouldn't have been particularly happy about that, to be honest, especially after the absolute destruction of Coventry. I mean, it became a byword for massive, successful bombardment during the Second World War. So perhaps that wasn't so attuned to public opinion. Uh, it's, I mean, it just suggests just how diverse, properly diverse, inevitably diverse, opinion and views were. And how tricky it therefore was for the MOI to sort of come up with a comprehensive collective view that didn't ignore people's experience and didn't sort of steamroll a simple patriotic positive idea. 
And I think coming back to these official war books, those did a very good job. Uh, in fact, Goebbels actually talked about one of the first two of these productions, saying how impressive they were because they didn't over-celebrate the British side. They did at least give an appearance of being tolerably objective and giving a balanced account of both. In terms of facts, what came through very early on, certainly by the Battle of Britain, is that many readers of newspapers are really frustrated by the fact that accounts of how many British fighters were lost and how many German bombers were downed were contradictory. One newspaper had a totally different account from the other. Claims were made that were clearly exaggerated and they were contradicted later. And the home intelligence reports picked up a very common plea. We can take it but we want to know the truth. We want to have facts. We want to know what the rates of loss were. And by 4041, the MOI were very conscious of actually giving people factual information. It may just be the top speed of a Spitfire or its altitude or the number of rubber boots produced in the last week or something like that. People liked that because they felt they were pretty solid. Opinions, uncertain. They always, you always felt they might be getting at you. But these straightforward factual accounts people liked. And one of the great things about the war book was they were packed full of statistics, of maps, of accounts of, of certain losses and certain gains and so on. And that did seem to appeal very strongly. Although there was one thing missing from the Battle of Britain war book. It sold millions, right? But uh, I remember reading a, a letter from Churchill saying that he was bloody annoyed that he wasn't mentioned once. There you are. Isn't that marvellous? You can have an organisation that actually deals with the event without actually celebrating the leaders necessarily. This sort of environment, which EMI was functioning, was extraordinarily difficult. It made lots of mistakes. It made lots of blunders. But it was also rather exciting. You mentioned the US audience. It wasn't just magazines that were sent out. Exhibitions were sent out. In early 1940, a whole exhibition was sent across the Atlantic on the London Fire Brigade. Oh, wow. It was a sort of documentary account, but quite clearly it was also, I say, look at all these brave men who are sort of coping. And very successful. In fact, the MLI created specific sorts of exhibition furniture. It wasn't just a set of photographs. The whole thing was carefully choreographed and structured and designed. Uh, but that's true of exhibitions generally, huge number of exhibitions. And one other thing I ought to add, because it shows the problems of or maintaining morale in open society, the MOI ran thousands of public meetings every year, 15,000, 20,000 public meetings, often a year, during the, during the mid-period of the war. And many of these were a presentation often guided by notes for speakers. But the speakers could completely ignore those notes if they wanted to. But they might deliver the speech as devised by the MOI. But then was always a question and answer session afterwards. And of course, that's wild, because there's no way of orchestrating that. There's no way of controlling that. And all sorts of questions were raised that the speaker desperately wanted to talk about, but wasn't in his remit at all. But by God, he went and gave his opinion about this. So again, there's a sort of uncontrollable openness, which is quite striking. I've got a question that, that I've got to ask you. I'll say it's my, my final question. 
Do you see that there are many parallels or lessons that could have been learnt from the Ministry of Information and this public dialogue that could have been applied to COVID and the public management of that? I'm thinking here when you're saying about the public want to know the facts, they want to know the truth, they want to know the statistics, and they want to really not be lied to. I think that's very difficult because so much of COVID was dependent on interpreter, even the experts could disagree. And a lot of the uh, anticipated statistics didn't emerge in the way that was anticipated. So that's very difficult to control, I think. I mean, one could might well be tempted, but I won't criticise government policy and that blimpish view that many of them took. But I think the problem of handling facts is for a long time, there really weren't all that number of facts or how you interpreted them was, was, was tricky. And that's the way in which I suppose Raising public morale or sustaining public morale by framing the information properly. You gave the information up and it was as true as you could make it. But you put it in a certain frame. You approached it in a particular way, which would have a, a, a value that one would hope would inspire people and convince them they were, they were fighting for a just cause. So it's quite often not the material. It's the way it's positioned and it's the way it's approached. That is the great triumph, I think, of the MOI. Uh, but they were always, always conscious. It's so easy to alienate people. And once you've alienated them, you've lost them. Actually, the MOI had a histogram of public morale, week by week, month by month, throughout the war. And the most extraordinary thing is morale rarely if ever dipped by very much. There was astonishing confidence that finally the Allies would win. I mean, you know, time the Dunkirk thing dipped a bit, as you might imagine, Norway and so on. But on the whole, it was sustained at a remarkably high level, which might argue that the British people were absurdly overconfident. Perhaps that just marvellous sort of chauvinistic belief that the British Empire would last forever. Who knows? Also, of course, they, they were confident they had the empire. It, it wasn't ever Britain alone. Tremendous amount of resource and manpower were coming to Britain through and fire the empire. And we mustn't forget the MOI was as much, if not more, directed outside the UK than it was inside. Many more people working much more in terms of things produced for the global market than for the UK one. And you actually get posters saying to a particular part that had provided money for a Spitfire, you actually had a poster, thanks so much. And they were very conscious of the need to talk through the British case to the huge global audience. And that meant, of course, understanding differences of culture, differences of language, differences of value. So the British case was quite different. If you were pitching it to India, or you were pitching it to Spain, or you were pitching it to Central or South American countries, quite different. Spain, given that its inclination was to identify with the fascists, you had to say you're defending Christendom. And actually, we had lots and lots of Catholics working for the war effort. It wasn't a Protestant war effort. Wow. So you kind of needed anthropologists on board to help you understand all of these places internationally. Indeed. And of course, the other thing was the MOI worked through embassies. Of course. So we had people on the ground who understood the culture and could, as it were, deliver. Also, you appointed people who were particularly knowledgeable about the Iberian Peninsula, for instance, to work in and through you and to make sure the translations weren't stilted or over-official or using idiom in the wrong sort of way. 
for Arab countries, actually, it wasn't so much printed material as forming discussion groups on, on the principle that Arabic-speaking nations had a tremendous strong cultural emphasis on orality, on discussion and debate. So you would have clusters of 20, 25 people and you'd send them subjects for debate. And that's how it, where you got the British view across. Uh, in South America, you had to say that Britain was in favour of independence and autonomy and so on. Tricky business. In fact, I suspect one of the things we were exploring in the book is that the MOI almost had to mortgage British international future to convince people that they ought to be on our side. We were offering them... <laughs> Freedoms that almost certainly Churchill would not have been keen to offer, particularly say in India. So it was a tricky business, but you had to fight the war in terms of a language and a set of values that a specified country or linguistic group were interested in. We were signing checks that we really didn't want to be cashed just to win the war. I suspect the those in the MI might have been more favourable towards that, but certainly the government uh, was not. And therefore, in a sense, it was a sort of intellectual political mortgage. Yeah. Simon, I could keep talking to you about this all day. My brain is running at a million miles an hour. We're going to get you back on to talk about the international perspectives in detail. But tell us, where can people read more about this astonishing topic? Interesting enough, there are not many books specifically on the MOI. There was one written in the 1980s, which is, which is a very good general summary. There has never been an official history of the ministry. It must be the only oh, wow. major governmental organisation during the Second World War that has not had an official history written about it. And that, I suspect, is partly due to the extraordinary diversity of people involved. The various tensions within it would make it almost impossible. Therefore, we're writing a communication history of the MLI, not a broad official history. We published a couple of years ago a, a collection of essays called Allied Communication to the Public during the Second World War. And there are a number of essays on the MLI and on linked organisations. And that will give you a taste because a number of the chapters are dealing with a variety of international markets and the way allies had to cope with these in a variety of different ways. Uh, our own book, which at the moment is provisionally titled Information at War, we hope will be published by UP in 2024. Wonderful. And in the meantime, like you say, there is that edited book, Allied Communication to the Public During the Second World War, and your project website, which is moidigital.ac.uk, and we'll pop a link to that into our description for this episode. Thank you so much, Simon. Not at all. If you're enjoying this podcast and you're looking for more fascinating warfare content, then go and subscribe to our Warfare Wednesdays newsletter. Just follow the link in the show notes to find out more. Mom 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.